Well, I feel like we've already had a great morning of worship, haven't we? And uh, hearing a testimony and singing to the Lord, reading scripture. And yet we need to hear a message from God's word. That's not only a command in scripture that the word be preached, but it's something we should desire, something we should want to hear God's word so that it will affect our lives, our hearts, our minds, and help us be more godly as Christians. We want to be more sanctified. And Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so we turn to God's word this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes. I've been doing an expository preaching series through Ecclesiastes, and we're in chapter 5 this morning. Chapter 5, we're looking at verses 8 through 20. And I've just simply titled the message, The Love of Money. I think you can already see where we're going by the title, The Love of Money. And we want to follow Solomon's observations. Follow the lessons that Solomon learned and is teaching us now in this wonderful book. Let me read the passage to you. Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is Hevel. Hevel in Hebrew could be other words in your translation. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and beautiful or fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. In this passage, we really see a contrast between God and what he provides for us and man's love of money, love of wealth, love of possessions. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are the most miserable. You've probably heard stories. Maybe you know someone like that. But sometimes you think somebody has it all because they have the house, they have the income, they have the toys, but they're the most unhappy in life. And not only that, but because they've trusted in those riches, they're on a path straight to hell. It's only trusting in Christ That leads to heaven. It's only trusting in Christ and turning away from other idols and turning to the one true God that gets us to heaven. Solomon has been trying to teach a young group of men in his kingdom, nobles, young men who would be rulers, even his son who would be the next king. And he records in Ecclesiastes what he's learned. These are lessons he's learned Because he turned away from the Lord for some time after having great success and great wisdom. He he turned away from the Lord. He followed after idols. He looked everywhere in the world for something to worship. Even though his wives were literally worshiping false god, Solomon 
was actually looking around at money and things and women and possessions and drinking, all the different avenues that we still try today, that mankind still searches after some kind of happiness and joy. And Solomon says, none of that is worth it. None of it really matters. What matters most is the Lord and what he tells us to do and that we fear him. It's not a short book. It's, it's 12 chapters. So he develops that over those 12 chapters. And chapters 1 and 2, he just tells us what he tried. All the lessons in life that he tried to find some kind of happiness. Something sort of left over after he dies. What's the point of life when I'm dead and gone? And so he tried all of these great and wonderful things in his mind. And they led to ruin. So those were his experiences in life. All he learned from that was that man is not good, that man is sinful, that man is depraved, that we are not inherently good, and we really can't change anything in the world to suit our desires. We can't make a change. God has set things up a certain way, and we can't play God. In chapters 3 through 5, which we're finishing out here, Solomon is now saying he's observed some things in life. These are not necessarily things that he tried, but he's observed as he looked around in his kingdom and the world. And he learned something. He learned that God is in control and has a design, a purpose for all things. That no matter what happens in this world, God has a purpose for it. He's designed it. He's providentially controlling all things for his purposes, which are good. And so... Solomon taught us right in the beginning in chapter 3 that God has a time for everything. And then he dealt with some objections to God's providence. Then he went ahead and told us at the beginning of chapter 5 that we ought to worship God with reverence, with fear, a true godly fear. And now he finishes out this section once again talking about money. Now you might wonder why is he bringing this up again. He's already told us that he chased after money real estate, all these things in life. Why is he telling us again? Well, you might ask why the Bible constantly brings up money. Because it's an easy idol for us. Our hearts, John Calvin said, are like idol factories. We make an idol of everything. And money is just one of those things that's really easy to make an idol of it. It has its purpose. God designed a money system to be upon the earth or it wouldn't have happened. But we always take good things and try to make them an idol. And Solomon is saying through his experience, he's observed these things. Things that, that he's seen. So that's one reason why he's coming back to it. And he's going to hit it from a different angle than he did before in his own life. But he also knows we don't learn the first time through. He's going to bring up this money. He's going to bring up oppression and justice. He's going to bring up the fear of God. He's going to bring up enjoyment of God over and over through this book. You see, it's not wrong to come back around and cycle back around to topics and ideas that are biblical. He just knows our hearts. God knows our hearts, you could say, when he inspired Solomon to write this. Money's going to be a problem even for the believer to think about properly and rightly. And so we need to hear it again. So what I want you to see in the passage this morning is whether we're poor or whether we're wealthy, and even somewhere in between, we must look to God because He's the only one that can give us true joy in this life and, of course, in the next. But really, Solomon's just looking right now at this life, life under the sun, life on the earth. God's the only one who can even give you joy now. That's not the only reason to, to trust in Christ. That's not the only reason to believe so you can have a great life now. That's prosperity gospel. No, we care about eternity. Solomon cares. He's already mentioned eternity in chapter 3. He'll come back to it. But he's saying all this striving that we do, all this work and making money and acquiring things, you can't even enjoy it truly if God is not your God. You're just serving yourself. So let's dive in here. First point that I really want you to see on how we should look to God instead of money is the role of government. The role of government in the first two verses here. 
People get really heated when they talk about politics and government. But the Bible addresses government. The Bible addresses political beliefs. Solomon wants us to know that government should be a blessing to its people and their work. Government should be a blessing to your work, to your life. Not that it gives you everything that you want, but that it designs the country or the nation or the kingdom, in Solomon's case, in such a way that people can work and prosper from their work. And don't be shocked, Solomon's going to tell us. Don't be shocked when that doesn't happen. Verse 8, if you see oppression, he lists all these things that he's already brought up. Oppression of the poor, denial of justice, denial of righteousness. The court system doesn't work like it should. People who should get a righteous judgment don't. And sometimes people even get sent to prison who are innocent. The province, he says, is, is full of corruption. You see there, these things don't happen in the province, in the different sections of his nation or any nation. The people are oppressed. Evil is done by the government. We think about evil individually, but evil can be done by government. You've seen some of the things that are happening in the world these last few years, last few months even. Church being fenced off in Canada. Locking, they're continuing to lock down, not letting people go to church. Churches are having to meet on farms out in the country and not tell anybody in Canada where they're going to meet. Only their members can come. Underground church. Well, how can this be? How can unrighteousness, injustice be done? Especially in Solomon's own kingdom. Well, he tells us here, For one official watches over another official. And there are higher officials over them. Literally, the Hebrew is, uh, A higher one watches over one, and an even higher one over him. Some people think this is about God. It's really not. It's about officials looking out for their own interest. How can people get away with injustice? Because somebody over them protects them. And maybe is sharing in the bribe that the judge got. And someone over them protects that person and all the way up the chain. There's a dishonest bureaucracy of government leaders. We don't see any of that today, do we? Dishonest leaders. A bureaucracy. Government officials he's saying, have a network of protecting one another, which makes it impossible to completely root out corruption. Even the best leaders who try to root out corruption, it seems like even if they do it, it can only be for a time. Get rid of crime in a large city like New York, next mayor comes along, what happens? It's back up again, over and over and over. And Solomon says, don't be amazed at corruption and injustice. Don't be surprised. Don't be amazed. Don't be shocked. You know, most people in our world think that man is inherently good. People think, and you'll even hear taught in culture, that we are good, and there's just a few people that turn bad. But when you understand that we're all born in sin, that we have a, a sin nature, that we desire to sin, then it won't shock you that you find sin in government that you find sin in the hierarchy of a nation's government. Don't be surprised when evil and corruption takes place. Even in a democracy. You might have studied government and say, well, democracy is better than all other forms of government. And I would agree. But even Winston Churchill said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. So yeah, we're blessed to have a democracy here, but don't think that corruption doesn't happen. You hear about it all the time on the news, on the website that you get the news from. Corruption, bribes, immorality, sin. Just be realistic, he's saying. Government is there to help people prosper, to protect them, to help them prosper. But yet, there's corruption, there's sin, because man is sinful. Man is born depraved. And if he's not saved, his whole goal is bringing his own desires, getting what he wants, setting up the structure of the world so that he can acquire what he desires. And Solomon says, be realistic. Come to grips with the effects of total depravity. If you're a believer, you understand the theology of the Bible. Let's be realistic. Let's come to grips with that. 
Take godly action wherever you can to influence government for good. Take godly action to promote righteousness. Stand up for those who are oppressed. But don't think you can fix the government completely. That's Jesus' job. That's what He's going to do. Don't think that you can change all corruption and make it go away. Verse 9, though, He gives us the opposing side. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now, this is difficult. This is a difficult sentence in Hebrew and even in English. It's kind of hard to determine how this verse goes with the previous one. Some say the king is bad in verse 9. And they understand the passage to say that at the top of this chain, top of this pyramid, is the king. And ultimately, he benefits from all the farm work, all the agriculture, all the business done in the kingdom. But Solomon usually says, on the one hand, this bad thing. And then he gives us, on the other hand, this good thing. So the context here shows us that really this is about a positive and a negative. Negative in verse 8. Positive here in verse 9. Here's what he's saying. Even though corrupt government officials exist, it's a blessing to have a king. We could say a president, a governor of our state. It's a blessing to have a king that protects people and their livelihood. You see, a corrupt government can just devastate the land, devastate the people. Back then it was agriculture as the main form of business and sustenance. A corrupt government can bring a people to the level of starving. Just look what happened in Venezuela a few years ago. People were lined up just to get a few groceries. Corrupt government can devastate small businesses. But a wise king, a wise king will bring profit to his kingdom by cultivating the field. It's not speaking literally here of the king Solomon, for example, going out and working on the farm. It's saying that the the kingdom is his field and he's cultivating it. He's taking care of it. He's getting it ready for planting. He's helping it be planted. He's overseeing the management of it. The king can also help by removing corrupt officials in the kingdom. He can do something. He can fight this corruption. He can make sure that the borders are secure. Philistines were constantly coming into the kingdom in Solomon's day. He eventually secured the borders, but not long after him, that would start again. And eventually Babylon would attack and take over the nation. The king can also pass favorable laws that make business prosper. This is what he said in Proverbs. When Solomon wrote Proverbs, he talked about this. Proverbs 20, verse 8, A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. Just a look can actually disperse justice. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 26. A wise king winnows the wicked. There's another farming analogy. You you throw up the grain and you let the wind blow away the chaff. You winnow the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. The threshing wheel would crush the grain. And the king here is crushing those who do evil. He had already written about this. Proverbs 29.4 The king gives stability to the land by justice, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. What we ought to pray for with our leaders is that not only would they come to Christ, not only would they be saved, but they would give stability to the country, to the state, to the county, to the city. And not constantly be destabilizing what's going on. Not constantly be passing laws that hurt small businesses that hurt the average working class individual. And Solomon's saying, even if the nation is going the wrong direction, a good king can help. He can cultivate the nation. And even, we could say, even if there's a corrupt king, that's better than anarchy. Just look at what's happened in some of the cities in the U.S. where they do away with the police force or back off a little bit. The mayor says, we're not going to arrest or carry guns anymore on the police force, you have complete anarchy. A ruining of small businesses. A ruining of livelihoods. And what are people doing? They're flocking to other states. They're coming to San Antonio, Texas and driving up the real estate prices as they move from these other places. 
places. Well, that's the first uh, thing that he says about the love of money. Now you say, well, where's money in that? Well, he's saying that what keeps, one of the things that keeps people poor is corrupt government. That keeps people from thriving. That keeps people from making more money so they can take care of their bills, feed their family. But the rest of verses 10 through 17 is dealing more with the rich man, the person who has money. So let's look at the danger of wealth. The danger of wealth. So there's a few of us today that that might be suffering oppression, injustice. But many of us are dealing more with this second category, the danger of wealth. Earthly treasures like money can bring about godly purposes, yes, but they can also be very dangerous to believers. Even those who follow God can really struggle with this concept of money, of wealth, of possessions. And Solomon wants his readers to understand there's common pitfalls. There's common dangers that we all experience in life that we need to watch out for, that we need to be careful of. And the first one he gives is covetousness is never satisfied. Covetousness, a desire to have more and more, and to have what other people have. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves abundance, this is just another word for wealth, with its income. A person wants more and more and more, and they're never satisfied, he says. That's a huge danger with money. Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 8. He already mentions this. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is Havel, and it is a grievous task. People are never satisfied with what they have. They always want something more. Enough is never enough. No matter how much money a person has, he always craves for more. Unless God has worked on his heart and done away with that desire. Or given him the ability, by changing his heart, of course, to fight that desire. You may have heard of the multimillionaire John D. Rockefeller. At one point in his life, he was making a million dollars a week. And this was at a time where that was a lot of money. Someone asked him, how much money is enough? And that's really a question we all ought to ask ourselves. How much money is enough? And he was clear with his answer. He said, just a little bit more. He was making a million dollars a week. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. That's like saying, I will never have enough. Because you could always say a little bit more, a little bit more, and you'll never have enough. It's not possible. A fleshly heart, a sinful heart, combined with money can generate an appetite that can never be satisfied. That's why the New Testament is so clear about money. The Old Testament too, but Jesus and the apostles have a lot to say about money. Just go with me to Hebrews 13.5. Mark your spot there in Ecclesiastes and flip over to uh, Hebrews 13.5. The struggle that we have as Christians is that we want to put our trust in money to take care of us. If I have enough money, then I'll be okay. And you know that parable about Jesus, uh, that Jesus told about the, the guy who had so much that he built bigger and bigger barns so he could just sit back and take a break and say, I've got all that I need. I don't need anything else. And God said, you fool, tonight your life, your soul is required of you. Well, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 13, 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Make sure as Christians, you don't have the love of money. Being content with what you have, whatever God gives you. He's not saying don't work hard. He's not saying don't do anything to make money. He's not saying wealth in itself is a sinful thing. He's simply saying don't love money. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's getting at the heart of it. The love of money says, I'm going to put my trust there. And get more and more of that. And I'm not going to trust in God. Now go to 1 Timothy. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the early church. Second generation of Christians. Paul has gone out. He's planted churches. Now he sent Timothy to one in Ephesus. 
And he's writing here to Timothy about what to teach them and how to conduct ministry in this church. 1 Timothy 6.6. And he wants to teach them about godliness. In other words, how you become more sanctified. How do you grow closer to the Lord? How do you become more like Christ? But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Be content with what you have. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. He's pointing back to Ecclesiastes, as we'll see. If we have food or covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He's talking about going to hell. A person says they're a Christian, but then all they do is follow money and love it and want more of it. And they end up being eternally destroyed. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. People often say money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's the love of it. And by chasing money, he says they're going to destruction. They've been pierced. Listen to that language. It's meant to put some fear in us so that we want to seek God and only Him. Solomon says this too is Hevel. Maybe your translation says vanity, but I've taught before on Hevel. It's a fleeting vapor. It's a mist. It's here one day and it's gone the next. You put your trust in money and it's just gone. It doesn't even last. And he'll develop that more throughout this paragraph in Ecclesiastes. The lover of money has replaced God with their desire for wealth. And they've ultimately devoted themselves to money. And then it's just gone. As opposed to God who lasts forever and ever and ever. This type of thinking is is a fleeting vapor, he says. It's like chasing wind. Just a little more. Let me have a little more wind. Let me get out and chase the wind and grab a little bit more and a little bit more. And where does that end? Covetousness is never satisfied. The second lesson here is the more you make, the more you spend. And we all know that to be true. The more you make, the more you spend. Verse 11, when good things increase, when you get more money, more wealth, more possessions, those who consume them increase. This is simply saying the more money you have, the more people want some of that money. The more you make, it sounds great, but then you're just dishing it out more. Now, in that day, it would have been more family members, greedy friends, and there's still this today. Somebody finds out you have money and you have greedy family members and friends hanging on, wanting some of the wealth. Just give me a little gift. Will you invest in this great, awesome business opportunity that's going to go flop in a year? Here's what Solomon said in Proverbs, and he puts it very bluntly there. Proverbs 30, 15. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. The leech sucking the life out of you. That doesn't sound very godly, but it's right here in Scripture. There are people in this world who want to just take from others. And if they can't steal it or they won't steal it, they'll hang around you and just bother you until you give it to them. One commenter on this text says, Wealth, unfortunately, seems to attract all sorts of parasites. People want some of it. This isn't people in need that you can help. That's a good thing to do with money. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about your own immediate family. He's talking about the guy who wins the lottery and suddenly he's got people calling him from when he was five years old, saying, hey, remember me? Or they find out you're a famous person, or they find out you have a business. People wanting and wanting more of what you have. Also, the government is going to want to consume some of your increase too. It's clear the more you make, the more you pay in taxes. Let's say you're in business for yourself. The more money you're going to spend as you grow that business on salaries, on taxes, you know, in small business, you don't only have to pay your taxes, but you got to pay a portion of the employee's taxes. 
And of course, the more you make, the more you spend. He's not necessarily saying that here, but that's implied. We all know it. Our spending always rises to our income, doesn't it? And for some, it goes beyond. That's how debt, especially credit card debt, happens. We always want to spend up to the line, up to what we make, and sometimes beyond it. And he just says, what's the advantage? The person who owns these good things, what is the point of having them? You're just looking on. You're just seeing them with your eyes. There's no advantage to getting more wealth if it's just going to be taken away. He's not saying don't work hard. He's not saying don't make money. He was the wealthiest man probably that ever lived upon the earth. He's just saying don't get fixated on that because it's just going to be gone. As soon as you get it, everybody wants a piece of it. All it's really good for is to look at in that case. You just watch it come in and then you watch it go out. Right? I watch it come into my checking account. I watch it go out in groceries. The third lesson here on money, the danger here, is wealth brings anxiety. Anxiety. I thought money was supposed to give us a sense of security. I thought money was supposed to give us something we could rely upon. You know, America is the wealthiest nation on the earth right now and has been for some time. Is it any wonder that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S.? We're the wealthiest nation. We have more money to buy food than anybody has ever had in history. And we're more anxious than any other country in the world. It's the number one mental illness. 40 million adults, 18% of the population every year. Anxious. Anxious. Worried. And Solomon says in verse 12, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. A working class man. Somebody who's just working to feed his family and pay the bills. Someone who has to work for his food, as opposed to someone who has enough so they can sit back and not worry about working for food. This man can relax. He can sleep peacefully. He's not worried. Depending on what kind of work he does, he might actually just be really tired from that work. But he's not anxious is the point. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. I'm speaking here again of an unbeliever or a Christian who's made money too high on the scale. Maybe even put money as an idol right now in his life, a backslidden Christian. This rich man has insomnia due to all the worries that come with money and things. He can't sleep. He's too worried about it. What might happen tomorrow? Where is it going to be? Am I going to lose it all? Is this investment going to go bad? Is this business going to go under? Is the government going to enact some new law where I can't even show up to work tomorrow? What's going to happen? It's better not to have it if that's the case. It's better just to have enough to meet your weekly, monthly needs and sleep peacefully. Again, in Proverbs, Solomon writes, Proverbs 17.1, Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Better to have just a little morsel and be quiet and be at peace than to have a house full of feasting, everything you could want, and all this strife. Let's go to Proverbs 30 and see what else Solomon has to say here. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I will not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me just enough. Give me what I need. You know what I need, God. Some will need more than others. Depends on where you live. Depends on how big your family is. Depends on your needs. But he's saying, and this is Solomon who had all the money that a person could ask for. Give me what I need, Lord. Don't make me in want so that I try to steal from others. And don't make me so full that I deny you and say, Who's God? I don't need God. Wealth brings anxiety. There was a a poem written a while ago that's not attributed to anyone. It says, money will buy a bed but not sleep, books but not brains, food but not appetite, finery but not beauty, a house but not a home, medicine but not health, luxuries but not culture, amusements but not happiness, religion but not salvation. A passport to everywhere but heaven. You can buy a lot in this life, but you can't buy true happiness. 
You can't buy a true relationship with God. You can't buy eternity. And in the end, it just gives you anxiety if you're not using it for God's purposes. Number four, the more you have, the more you can lose. This might be what's keeping the guy up all night. The more you have, the more you can lose. And he spends a few verses developing out this parable, this story. He says, there's a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun. This is a really bad thing I'm about to tell you about. And the language here is a little, I think, softer than literal translation would be. Grievous evil is really a sickening tragedy. The word evil in in Hebrew could be evil like in sinful evil or just a calamity that happens. And grievous is, is better translated sickening. It makes you ill that this would happen. It's a sickening, disgusting tragedy. By the way, this is a helpful lesson on word studies. You can read your English translation and get all that you need to be saved. You can even get sanctified by reading your English translation. But it's good to know a little bit about word study so you can dig in and see it in HD full color. It's a sickening tragedy. He's really upset. He's emotional here. And so it's, it's important to have these uh, Bibles that have footnotes and cross-references. It's also important to get on some software online and just study what the word means and its original. In this case, Hebrew. It's sickening, he says, that riches are being hoarded by their owner to his own hurt. The guy works so hard to get these things, and then it's just hurting him. He's piling it up. He's hoarding. Now, we think of hoarding as these shows where you walk into this house and it's just full of stuff. And that could be some of us, but riches are hoarded today in a bank account, in retirement accounts, in real estate, in different investments. And this person is piling it up, and it's hurting him. He doesn't realize it, though. And here's when he begins to realize it. Verse 14, when those riches were lost through a bad investment. And again, the word is evil here. It could be a a calamitous event, something that wasn't his fault. Maybe he invested unwisely and lost it, but maybe lightning struck. Maybe a storm hit. Maybe all his animals died. Whatever that is, it was a bad investment because he lost it all. Not necessarily due to foolishness. And then he fathered a son. And there's nothing to support him. The more literal translation, there's nothing in the father's hand. There's nothing left. It's all gone. He can't even help his son out. He can't even take care of his son. He's going to struggle. Because he's lost it all. What's the point of having money if you're just going to lose it? Verse 15, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. This father who had nothing to even take care of his own family is going to die with nothing. Just like he came into the world, he'll go out. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Now in those days, and even maybe today, rabbis, Jewish rabbis taught that the reason a baby comes into the world with clenched fist is in order to grab whatever he can. And they taught that the reason that you leave this world with an open hand as you can take nothing with you. This is what Job says, Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You've heard me say it here, that you don't see a U-Haul behind a hearse. What are you going to do with all those things when you're gone? It means nothing. And you can lose it in this life. So yes, work hard and, and see how the Lord will bless that. But you put your trust in money, and then you're just going to see it disappear. And then what? Your idol, your God just disappeared. It's a scary thought. Number five, wealth cannot buy you eternal life. Wealth cannot buy you eternal life. Verse 16, he's again, a sickening tragedy, a grievous evil. This makes you sick, he says. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. Not sick as in he's mad. He's saying, this just hurts to think about. A person comes into the world, they trust in money, and then they die. What's the advantage of the person working so hard all their life for wind? You work all your life for wind. 
What's the point about the wind? There's nothing there. You hear it. You feel it. But you can't grab it. You can't hang on to it. It's like the wind. And now he really opens up this person's miserable life. Verse 17. Throughout his life, he eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Darkness symbolizes misery. This guy's miserable. You even get the sense he doesn't have a family. He's chased money so that no one even wants to be around him because that's his God. And vexation, the burdensome cares of life. He's vexed. He's, he's worried. He's struggling. He's all alone in darkness. He's got sickness, the physical toll of a person working so hard. You work hard for what? To get sick? Go to the hospital every day? To stay on medications your whole life? Well, sometimes you can't help that, but this guy, he's, he can help it. He's worked himself to death. And then anger. He's upset about it. This is the emotional outcome. So we have a physical toll and an emotional outcome. He had all these ambitions, all these goals, all these desires that had to do with his wealth, and he couldn't get them, and he's frustrated. Just a little more, Rockefeller said, just a little more. This is why Jesus, and all the wisdom that Jesus taught, Matthew 16, 26, hits the nail on the head. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can't buy eternal life, but yet everybody in this world is trying to work like they can. Until you get saved and you realize the truth. And then sometimes you want to go back to that, don't you? You feel the pull, the temptation, the flesh. If I could just work a little bit harder, get a little bit more, everything would be great. All my problems would go away. I'd be a more godly person too, right? Right? If I could just get a little bit more, a little more, a little more. But it doesn't buy you eternal life. So put it in perspective. Put it in perspective. I like what John Wesley had to say. He was a preacher in the 1700s. He preached in America. He preached in the UK. He made a lot of money, not only from his preaching events, but also his book sales. A lot of money for that day. And here's what he taught his people. He said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So the Lord blesses you. He gives you things. He gives you money. What do you do with it? Save it, give it away. Not save it for a rainy day so that you'll be taken care of and not trusting God. But save it in that day meant so you could get a place to live. They didn't have credit cards. They didn't have mortgages. Save it today so next week when you go to the grocery store, you have some money. You didn't spend it all this week. And give all you can. And Wesley could have been very wealthy from his writings, but he chose to live simply and give generously. So those are the dangers of wealth. How does he sum up this chapter, this whole section from chapter 3 to 5? Well, this is our third main point, the reward of God. Yes, there's evil in the world. Yes, there's dangers to wealth and money you need to stay away from. But we need to focus on God. He is the answer. He is the solution to all of our sinful problems. Verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good. So he told us all the bad. Sickening, he said, disgusting even. Makes him feel sick to think about it. But here's what's good and beautiful. Not just fitting, but let's translate it literally here, beautiful. Just like in 3.11. You remember 3.11? God has made everything beautiful in its time. And the SB translates it appropriate. I think beautiful is a fine word. It's beautifully made to fit exactly what God designed it to do. Here's what's beautiful. What is good and beautiful? To eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labors. And which he labors or toils under the sun. It's good. It's, it's a beautiful thing to enjoy what God has given you. Don't feel guilty about that. Feel guilty if it's a sinful desire. Feel guilty if you've hurt somebody to get what you have. You should because you've sinned. You should feel guilty when you sin. But don't feel bad for having people over to your house to celebrate. Don't feel bad for being able to feed your family. Don't feel bad. Now, don't be wasteful, right? Don't buy more than you can use, more than you can eat. But enjoy the fruit of your labor. Now, look at that phrase. 
enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he labors under the sun. Now go back to chapter 1 and verse 3. This is the question that he started the whole book with. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? You can't see it in English, but it's the exact same in Hebrew here. What is the advantage that a man has in all his labor which he labors under the sun? So he asks the question in one three, and he says, labors which he labors. Now go to 2.18. Same phrase in this section, 2.18 through 20. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is Hevel. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. So there they translate it right. He's developing this idea. Why work so hard? That was the question that started the book. What's life all about? Why work like this? And he said, it's not found in all those things. In the end of chapter 2, he says, it's not found in all those things that I listed. I despaired of that. There's no point. I'm just going to leave it to the next guy who's going to destroy the kingdom. And he did. But here, he's got a different answer for us, doesn't he? Now, he's not done answering that question, but he has a different answer for us. Eat, drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, which he labors. He's finally giving us some answers. Finally, Solomon, you've been throwing out questions the whole book and you're starting to drop some hints, at least, toward the ultimate answer. While you work, while you live, enjoy the fruit of your labor. That's good. That's godly. It's not the ultimate advantage, but it is an advantage. It is a blessing. It is something good. Verse 19, he talks about now even if you're wealthy, you could say 18 is the person who just has enough, and 19 is the person who has more than enough. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, that's most of us in America today, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. So you have some money. Did you get it lawfully? Did you get it either passed down from you or from your own work? Enjoy it to the glory of God. Enjoy it. Don't, don't live like a heathen with it. Don't trust in it. But use it and enjoy it. God's empowered you. He's given you the ability to eat from that fruit and to have that reward. It's not the ultimate reward. It's not the ultimate advantage. Some translations say portion here. The reward is just a portion. It's what God has given you now as a portion of his blessings. It's not all the blessings God will give. Eternal life. It's not that. But it's a portion for now. And here's how he sums it up in verse 24. He will not often consider the years of his life. Talking about the rich man or the poor man. You're not going to think about death all the time. And the curse upon the world. Because God keeps him occupied. Or answers him. You could say there's another translation with the gladness, with the joy of his heart, the person's heart. God helps this person not just focus on how short life is. We should be thinking about that. You notice the word often? The person's not always thinking about partying and enjoying life. But often, often he's focused on God and the blessings that God has given us. We don't deserve one day. We don't deserve one hour, one minute to still be breathing because we have sinned at some point in our life against a holy God. Today, we have sinned, each one of us, against God. We don't deserve that. And yet, God has given us joy and gladness and goodness. And we don't have to think about how short life is, how death is coming. We should sometimes. Psalm ninety twelve teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. But we should also thank God for what He's given us now. Unbelievers, backsliders, they're afflicted with the task 
that God has given them just to build up, build up, work, 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 see everything pass away. But the one who's truly put the trust in the Lord and is following him right now, the believer, has a different task. What's, what's the believer's task? To be occupied with gladness, rejoicing of heart. I'll finish with this quote from Warren Wearsby. I think his commentary summarizes this whole passage well here. If we focus more on the gifts than the giver, we are guilty of idolatry. If we accept his gifts but complain about them, we are guilty of ingratitude. If we hoard his gifts and will not share them with others, we are guilty of indulgence. But if we yield to his will and use what he gives us for his glory, then we can enjoy life and be satisfied. If we're followers of God, if we're truly saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can enjoy what God has given. We don't have to feel bad about that. We can enjoy it and we can use it to help others and we can give and we can do that to the glory of God. Now, if you're without a Savior, if you don't have Christ as your Savior, you cannot enjoy that. You might think that you can. You might think, God's given me a gift. I'm going to use it for myself. And ultimately, it will be if you're not saved. Without salvation, without Christ, you'll never be satisfied. That's a truth. That's a fact. You'll never truly enjoy the blessings of this life. And most importantly, you'll never obtain eternal life without Christ. And so the whole Bible tells us to trust in the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to save sinners. If you're focused on things and you don't have the Lord as your Savior, it's not going to matter. You're like all these bad examples that Solomon has been talking about. Eternal destruction, Paul says. Piercing. Piercing. Pain. Destruction. Hell. Trust in the Lord. You get a little portion of blessings in this life, which we quite enjoy. And you get the eternal blessing of heaven. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It, it reminds us. It teaches us. It gives us the lessons you want us to learn. Forgive us when we sin, when we put money as an idol. Help us to knock that idol off the shelf, to crush it and to use wealth according to your will. Give us wisdom in how we spend our money, how we make our money, and the things that we do with it. Lord, you are sovereign. You are over all things. You have designed everything, including money, including work, for a good purpose. Help us to be in line with that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.